Father in heaven, thank you so much for seeing us safely through this past week. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and study your word now. And I just pray that as we look at this special encounter, that you would please guide us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us, O Lord, is our earnest plea and prayer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the encounter that we're looking at this evening is Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery. And this encounter is a special one because it's only found in the Gospel John. You know, we've been jumping through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John. And, you know, one of them was found in all four Gospels. Do you remember which one that was? It was the feeding of the 5,000. But this encounter that we're looking at this evening is only found here in John chapter 8. So let's go there, shall we? John chapter 8, and we're starting in verse 1. The Bible says this, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Look, this was a normal day. Christ, he had been in the Mount of Olives. It was his favorite place to be. And he now came down and he came early in the morning to the temple and began to teach people. He began to heal people. He began to see to all the people that were following him. But he made sure that he had his early time with God. But now people are gathering. People are coming to listen. People are coming to seek Christ. And then what do we find here in John chapter 8 and now verses 3 and 4? And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And so these scribes and Pharisees, they bring this woman that's taken in adultery and throw her at the feet of Jesus. They had dragged her through the streets half naked. They had caught this woman in the very act. Now, where was Jesus though? Where was Christ at this point? Do you remember? We read it in verse 1 and 2. Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives and He went into the temple and He was there teaching the people. You know, what was happening? It was like a church service. Jesus was teaching and preaching Today's equivalent is Jesus would be in the church and the scribes and Pharisees, they catch this woman that is caught in adultery and throw her there half naked in church, right there interrupting Jesus' teaching. Now friends, what would you do if a church leader brought a woman caught in adultery half naked right into church and threw her at the very front of the church? Not the best place or the best timing for that, isn't it? But the scribes and Pharisees, they didn't care. They were desecrating the temple of God. They were desecrating the, the, the church. And, and not to say that you couldn't bring a woman into that, that place, but they had evil intentions. They had caught this woman in the very act. They were waiting to catch this woman as if they, they needed some sort of bait to bait, to, uh, bait out Christ and, and try to attack Him. They were finding anyone who had just been caught in adultery and just bring them before Christ rather than helping, 
rather than trying to restore, rather than trying to reconcile this person who obviously had had not good morals and a good upbringing, rather than trying to bring this person back to Christ, they were trying to condemn. They were trying to find fault. These people, they already had a wrong attitude. And they had no love or compassion for this woman. They were just out to destroy her because they were out to catch Jesus. And you know what's very interesting? If you go back to this verse, in verse 4, it says, This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, friends, look, you can't commit adultery by yourself. You cannot commit adultery on your own. Where was the man in all of this? Had he gotten scot-free? Did they just let the man go? Did they know where he was and who he was? Were they so busy plotting against Christ? Or was this man even part of the group that came along because he was trying to catch a woman caught in adultery just so that they could condemn Christ? Where was the man in all of this? We don't know. We don't know. But yet, only the woman was brought and thrown half-naked at the feet of Jesus. They had the wrong attitude. They had the wrong timing. They were in the wrong place to do such a thing. Well, what happens next? John chapter 8, continuing, and verse 5 and 6. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Now, what was the reason why they brought this woman caught in adultery? They wanted to test Christ. They were trying to catch him out. They were trying to find fault with him. They hated Christ. Why? Were they jealous because of all the people that were following him? Were they jealous because he could do so many miracles and they couldn't? They were probably jealous for so many different things. And Jesus even gave sermons that pointed right at them. So they, they had much in a sense to be angry at Christ and they just wanted to get rid of Him. They could not accept Him as Christ, the Savior, because they were looking for a king. They were looking for someone to conquer the Romans. And so this man obviously was not coming to conquer the Romans when they tried to make Him king on the hillside. You remember that? Jesus sent all of them away, sent them all packing. He sent the disciples off into a boat. Obviously, Jesus' intentions did not line up with what they were expecting the Messiah to be. And so they were always trying to catch out Christ. They were trying to make Him trip over and fall. And they went to the extent to find a woman caught in adultery, bait her, because obviously they didn't bring the man. They weren't walking along and just go, oh, what is this? No, they were doing this intentionally. They were on the hunt for such an act, and they did this to try to catch out Christ. Now, how would they be able to accuse Christ, though? I mean, if Jesus agreed, right? I mean, if you go back to, to the slide here, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. So a woman that was caught in adultery, they, they should be stoned. Now, this was a very difficult question. 
Why? Because if Jesus agrees with them and says, yes, they should be stoned, what was the problem with that? He was defined authorities of the Romans. He was defying the, the, those that were in charge, that had the power to say, yes, you can stone, to condemn, to, to judge. The Jewish nation was subservient to the Romans. They couldn't just go, hey, we're, we're, we're just going to stone anybody. That's why when Jesus Christ was crucified, not only did they send him to the high priest Caiaphas, but eventually they had to send him to the Roman governor at that time, who was Pilate, and then it was Herod. So, you know, they could not just condemn a man to die, or in this case, a woman to die for no good reason and with no authority from the Romans. So if Jesus agreed, yes, 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 Moses is correct. We should stone her. And that was correct. Moses really did. In the olden days, if you were caught in adultery, you were stoned. In fact, when you look back in the Old Testament about what Moses wrote and why they stoned people, I mean, you could be stoned for dishonoring your parents. Can you believe that? You could be stoned for desecrating the Sabbath. You could be stoned for, for not, I wouldn't say trivial things, but some in our day, it seems trivial, okay? But really, Moses did right. They weren't lying. They got that right. Moses in the law said that if you were caught in adultery, you should be stoned. So if Jesus agreed with them, He's defined the Roman authority. Now, if Jesus does not agree with her being stoned, what is wrong with that? Well, he's going against the law of Moses. And they can condemn us like, look, I thought you're a Jew. I thought you're a Hebrew. I thought you're the Savior. And if you're the Savior, well, you should agree to one of the greatest prophets that we've ever had, right? Why are you defying the authority of Moses, whom God spoke face to face as like a friend? So it seemed like it was a lose-lose situation for Christ. To, to go one way will be bad. To go the other way, you wouldn't win either. He was caught between what you call a rock and a hard place. From the fire into the frying pan. And this was a difficult situation and they thought they had Christ. They knew. And so that's why they were looking for a woman to catch her in, in the very act of adultery so that they come and throw this question at Jesus to see what his response would be. They didn't care about the woman. They cared about just condemning Jesus. But how does Christ respond? John chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. We read part of verse 6, but I'm going to finish the verse now. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Look, what happened at first? It's as it's as if Jesus did not even hear them. He just, they asked him the question. Moses in the law said that this woman should be stoned because she was committing adultery. What do you say, Christ? And he just begins to write on the ground. We don't know how long. We don't know what he was writing. We'll get to that in a minute. But he just did not answer them a single word. 
And sometimes it's better just to pause. Let the whole heat of the situation just calm down first. Easy to say, hard to do for someone like me. I talk too fast without thinking too many times. So often I'm not like Christ. I'm more like Peter before he's converted, speaking without thinking. Ah, oh, I would have said something. I would have chosen one of those options. And before I knew it, it was too late. I put myself into a difficult situation. But Jesus, he just remained silent. And he began to write. And then when he looked up, what did he say? Do you remember what he said? In verse 7. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. So you know what? He didn't respond and it began to agitate the scribes and the Pharisees. Why are you ignoring us? Why are you ignoring us? Jesus, can't you hear us? Moses said she should be stoned. But what do you say? And finally, when they kept pressing on him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, What? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And right after that, he just continues to write. If I was a woman, I'm right there, I'll be expecting a stone. I'd have my head bowed over, I had my hands to cover my head. I'd expect a stone to fly, but you know what? Guess what? Nothing happens. No one throws a stone. Jesus says, if you're without sin, go ahead, throw a stone. High claim, right? If you are sinless, if you have never sinned before, if you're without sin, pardon me, not never sin, but if you're without sin, obviously all these scribes and Pharisees could not. Look, who are the scribes and Pharisees? They're religious leaders. They are what you call pastors today, priests. They work in the church. They're paid by the tithe and the offering. They are full-time in the church there. They're teachers of the law. They're meant to know their Bibles. They're meant to be preaching every week. Or, you know, at least the person you'd expect to be in church would be these people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet, they have sin in their life. Look, friends, you don't know my life. Don't just listen to anybody just because they can talk or just because you seemed blessed by the sermon. It doesn't mean that this person is living a holy life. Yes, I'm talking about myself. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm living an outright sin, but I'm just saying, look, it, it, it is possible. All these religious leaders, they were not able to throw one stone. They were living in sin. Never, ever, ever make anyone, any single person on this earth, your role model. They're human. Make Jesus your all in all. Only He will never fail you. Only He can cast that stone because He was sinless. He could, but He didn't. And we're going to see throughout this story, but Jesus says, if you are without sin, go ahead, throw that first stone. And none of those scribes and Pharisees, none of those religious leaders could throw a stone. He wasn't saying, yes, go against the Romans. He wasn't going, he's saying, yes, go against Moses. He didn't say either way. But he had a wise answer. You know, friends, 
it doesn't mean that our judicial system has no right to judge us. No, he didn't defy the authority of the Romans. He did not do that. And we have a judicial system in our countries today. And yes, sometimes they're corrupt. But you know what? It's not saying that you should never, ever, ever judge a person. This is in the instance of what? Stoning a person, killing somebody. But Jesus was trying to teach these people a lesson. And they, they had their lives bare before Christ. He could see what they were doing. That day, no one threw a stone because no one was without sin. No one could judge. And of course, Jesus could because He was sinless. But yet, He didn't. He was full of compassion, full of love. But after Jesus said that, if you're without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. What happened next? Do you remember? Verse 8, And again He stooped down and wrote, on the ground. He just kept writing. And you know, before we get to what he was writing, let's have a look at the situation of Jesus writing in the sand, okay? Look, Jesus is God, right? We hardly ever see God write in the Bible. And I'm not going to go through all the instances, but you know, even here, when Jesus writes, it's in sand. It will be blown away. There'll be no record of it. There was no photographs. There were no cameras. There were no video cameras. There was nothing that they could do to preserve this. But you see, God, when He writes, it's very important. Let's just have a look at the finger of God really quickly, okay? What is the finger of God connected to? When God writes, whether that's God the Father, whether it's Jesus, you know, when He writes, when they write, what does this mean? What is it connected to? Well, let's go to our first text, Psalms chapter 8 and verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Do you see that? When I consider, oh, pardon me, I didn't turn the, the, the slides. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained. What is this talking about? This is talking about creation. With the finger of God, he created the whole world. Yes. Look, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse and 1 and 2, um, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, pardon me, God did it by speaking, right? He didn't really use the finger. But what is this related to? We're going to come back to this, okay? But somehow we know that the finger of God is connected with creation. Where else do we see the finger of God? Exodus 31, verse 18. And He gave unto Moses, when He had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Now, this is the more famous one. God wrote the Ten Commandments with His finger. Okay, so we know that the law of God is connected with the finger of God. And what is the law of God in relation to? Judgment. Judging. That's what the law is for, right? It judges us. So we know that the finger of God is connected with creation. We know the finger of God is connected with judgment, the Ten Commandments. What else? Matthew 12, 28. Now, we're going to look at two texts here, so stay with me. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, 
then the kingdom of God is come to you. So Jesus cast out devils by the Spirit of God. But what is that connected to? Let's look at a parallel passage in Luke 11 verse 20. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. So in, in Matthew, it calls it the Spirit of God cast out demons. But in Luke, it says the finger of God casts out devils. So the finger of God is connected with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. So look, I want you to catch me. Stay with me. The finger of God is connected with creation. The finger of God was used to write the Ten Commandments. It's related to judgment, the law. The finger of God is the Holy Spirit. And that's how we know that it's connected with creation because the Holy Spirit was present in creation. He was active in creation as well because the finger of God is not His literal finger in that sense. It is the Holy Spirit. Now, how is this all connected. Why are we looking at this? Because Jesus is writing in the sand with his finger, the finger of God. And what is he doing? He's judging his law. And the Holy Spirit is there present too, convicting, convicting people of what they've done wrong. And I want you to just look at what happens when Jesus writes. Look at this. John chapter 8, verse 9. Look at this. When, when, when Jesus is writing, they come close because He's not saying anything. And they gather around, they want to see what Jesus is writing, right? And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Beginning at what? the eldest even unto the last, from the oldest to the youngest. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. What happened? Well, they, they were impatient. They wanted Jesus to answer the question. He answered their question and He kept writing and there was deafening silence because none of them were without sin. But just in case they were tempted to, to pick, pick up a rock, thinking they, that they were without sin, they gathered around to see what Jesus was writing. They were interested in what He was writing, and He was judging them. The Holy Spirit was convicting them, and it was by no luck or chance that these people left from the oldest to the youngest. It wasn't by coincidence. You know, when Joseph in Genesis, he, he's Pharaoh, no, he's Pharaoh, he's the prime minister of Egypt and the brothers don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And, he, and then they come for a feast and he sits them down from the oldest to the youngest. It's no coincidence. Joseph knew what he was doing. And in this instance, Jesus knew what he was doing. He was dealing with the sins of those that were thinking that they had the right to come and stone this woman and accuse this woman and judge this woman. Jesus was writing their sins in the sand. And thank God He was doing that because He was being merciful. The sand would blow it away. Feet would trample over it. But maybe, just maybe, Jesus wrote, Liar! And the oldest one left. Second one, adulterer. Ooh, maybe He was the one that was with that woman. They were using Him to bait her. And he was in the midst, he left. 
abuser of your wife. The third one left. Liar. Oh, another one left. Or maybe it wasn't because maybe they all had different sins. That's why they left one by one. But Jesus, with his finger, was judging them. He was judging them. Just in case they thought they were without sin. Maybe they were self-deceived, thinking that one of them could throw a stone at the woman. So Jesus' silence attracted them to what he was writing. And finally, they all leave one by one. You know, Jesus could have looked at every single one of them and say, I know your hearts and lives. I, I can read all the sins in your lives. And he could have pointed them out. But Jesus was trying to save them. He was trying to show them that he was divine, that yes, he was the Messiah. He could read their hearts, so he wrote it in the sand. But they all left. Instead of falling down at the feet of Jesus and saying, God, forgive us. Forgive me. You're right. You know, Jesus was just waiting for them to confess. But they all left. You know, God does not judge just to condemn and that's it. He judges so that your conscience can be quickened and convicted and that you will be brought to the foot of the cross. You know, sometimes we think that, oh, why did you say that? You, you, you were too strong. You shouldn't have said it like that. But you know what? Christ even sometimes was straight. But He was trying to save them. And maybe, maybe just this evening or maybe one of the sermons that you have heard, it's really cut to your heart and it's hurt. I don't know your lives. I'm just looking at the camera right now. I don't know who's listening. But Jesus does. And the Holy Spirit does. And maybe it's not my words, but it's the Holy Spirit that's pressing upon your conscience this evening. And Jesus is saying, don't run from me. Run to me. Tell me all about your sin. I love you. Don't run away. Come back. Come back. Jesus was waiting, but they all left. And the one that was caught in the very act, she was still there. <laughs> it's because Jesus did not need to write her, her sin in the sand. It was obvious. They, it was public. She was humiliated in front of everybody. But yet she remained. She stayed there right at the feet of Jesus. Because she sensed his compassion and his love. What happens next? John chapter 8, 10 and 11. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. <laughs> she looks up and, and Jesus asks, Where is everybody? No one's condemned you? She's like, No man, no one. But before she can run off as well, thinking that she was scot-free, Jesus gives us the most important lesson 
in all of this encounter, he says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know, this, this sentence, this phrase is so important. It's so important. First, Jesus says what? Neither do I condemn thee. And it's not because Jesus is not without sin that he's saying, I don't condemn you, that I, I can't condemn you. He wasn't putting himself in the same boat as the scribes and the Pharisees whom he just wrote out all their sins in the sand. No, he didn't have sin in their lives. He, in his life, he was sinless. He was a spotless Lamb of God who would eventually take away the sin of the world. So why does he say, neither do I condemn thee? Because he would have the power to forgive this woman. He would read the woman's heart, that she, he could read the woman's heart, that she wanted to be set free from this life of sin, from this life of prostitution, of selling her body. And Jesus had the authority to say that because he was going to die on the cross and give everybody that opportunity to change. The cross, Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to set us free from sin. He came to give us a second lease on life, a third lease, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a tenth chance, a fiftieth chance. Friends, you might think that you've done something so bad. You've Like this woman, you, not, you, not only have you been publicly humiliated, you were caught in the very act. People surrounded you and saw what you were doing and you deserve to die. But yet Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee because he was ready to take her sin upon himself. And that's why he says that. But he does not stop there. You see, if Jesus just says, neither do I condemn thee, he's condoning the woman to go back and live the life that she had lived. Well, well, you know, look at all these religious leaders. They're sinning. They can't. They can't be set free from their sin. They, they, none of them could condemn me. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you don't condemn me. If Jesus had just stopped there, neither do I condemn thee, he would have given that woman license to sin. But he doesn't. He doesn't stop there. He says what? Go and sin no more. He doesn't gloss over what she has done. She really had sinned. She really had done wrong. And that's why Christ has to say, sin no more. He called sin exactly what it is, sin. He says, yes, I don't condemn you. I'm giving you another chance, but sin no more. It doesn't mean that you can go back and live the life that you have been living. He wasn't excusing her from her sin. He wasn't trying to minimize what she had done, even though she'd been caught in the very act and dragged through those streets, publicly humiliated. What she had done was sin. She really had sinned. And Christ says, go and sin no more. I want you to stop living this life that you've been living right now. He didn't say, I give you one month. He didn't say, I give you one week. He didn't even say, I give you one day to get your act together. He said, when you leave my presence, stop sinning. Stop right this very instance. Now, did you see the woman turn around and go, Jesus, come on. 
That's unreasonable. You expect me to stop sinning right now? Yes. I don't condemn you. Go sin. No more. That's the same as stop sinning. Stop doing what you've been doing. Why? Because in the very Word of God, in the very Word, just like that one word that Jesus said to Peter, come when he wanted to walk on water out to Jesus, that one word sustained him. And if the woman could believe these words, she would be sustained from sinning. The Word of God has that very power this evening, friends. It has the power to change you. You've got to believe it. And if you can't believe it, you just got to spend more time in it until you do believe it. Because when your faith and your belief is able to take hold of the Word of God and make it part of your life and make it integrated, that's why the Word of God is like bread. We can eat it. It can assimilate into our life. It becomes a part of us. It becomes that which sustains us. And when the Word of God is that to every single one of us, guess what, friends? We will stop sinning. But this evening, you got to believe it. And you know, the problem is, so many of us, we judge the validity and the possibility of God's Word with our experience. Can't stop sinning. Look, Jesus, the religious leaders, they were sinning too. None of them could judge this woman. Ah, look, you know, this person that I know, that I respect, I saw him sin too. And when we take human examples to justify the reason why we can continue to sin and we make Jesus look illogical, irrational, are you serious, Christ? You wanted this woman to stop sinning? How unreasonable. Ah, oh, we don't say it that way, do we? Because this is Jesus, our Savior. But we don't do it. We don't believe it. But friends, today Jesus wants to set you free. He did not die so He could condemn you. He's not a high priest in heaven so He can condemn you. No. He wants to save you. Save you from what? Your sin. And this evening, He wants you to stop. Just to pause and focus on His Word. In there you'll find Jesus. In there you will find grace. In there you will find the love of God. And it will set you free from your sin, friends. The Word of God, heard, assimilated into your life, will give you power like nothing else on this earth can. But we've got to spend time in it today. And then, not only that, but you've got to believe it you got to let the Word of God sink in and assimilate into your life so that you can live it. Friends, today, I want you to come back to the Word. God has given us everything that is needed to live a holy and a godly life. He's given us everything. The tools, you could say, that can give us victory over sin.
if we make it to heaven at last, we will know the reason why we got there. It won't be by accident, friends, because the map is laid out so clearly and so simply. You know, we're about to start church in a couple of weeks. It's been so long. But I hope that in this past year where you've been locked up, that you have used those Sabbath hours wisely to gain a deeper relationship with God's Word. I see it sometimes, you know, and I feel that way sometimes too. You, you, you look at the computer so long and look at all these sermons and you just want to go rest. You want to just go sleep. But friends, God in this past year has given us opportunity to grow in faith, to strengthen our relationship with Him. I hope that you have taken that opportunity. And if you haven't, friends, it tells me the fact that you are listening to this sermon this evening or this morning or this afternoon, whenever you're listening to it, the fact that you're listening, it tells me the Holy Spirit is still working in your heart. But I want you to go beyond just sitting there listening. I want you to open the Word of God. I want you to come back to His Word. I want you to dig deep. I want you to take time to spend with Jesus again so that before you get used to this new normal, you can have a new experience in Christ and become a new creature. You can go forth from this place and sin no more. May God help us to that end today, this evening, especially on these holy Sabbath hours. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love and your high standard and the strength that you offer to attain that high standard. Lord, we can't do it on our own. All of us have tried it in our own strength and we've been miserable failures. Lord, please help us. Help us to be more than victorious, to be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus today. Help us to go forth with that resolute, determined purpose that we will go forth from this place and sin no more. Please, Lord, help us. Your word is clear this evening. It's written there. Lord, help us to believe. And then strengthen our faith so that we can have victory over sin today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.